Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker, and me, Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian. On today's podcast, we're talking with Vanessa Shields, Windsor poet and owner of Gertrude's Writing Room. And we'll hear from Cecil Foster, author of They Call Me George, recently launched by Biblioasis here in Windsor. It's a book about Canadian history that has a lot of ties into the local Windsor community. We're starting off our talk today by thinking about how important it is to understand a writer's process. How does that impact the experience? Yeah, there are very different theories about that. I was just thinking about my Lit Crit class and how every class felt like it was my first one. But um, I think it's very interesting to learn about the process and um, and to see how uh, authors put together their ideas. And uh, it really does help other authors work. Um, for example, we're going to hear a little bit about Vanessa talking about prompts. And um, that was very interesting to hear that as, as kind of part of the process. I like to know useless information that I can share at cocktail parties. So I'm always really interested in the writer's process so that I can speak knowledgeably about it and really annoy people. I'm, I'm always curious about the writer's process. And I always want to know more. And that's the human side of me. I feel a little ambivalent sometimes, because sometimes when you feel like you know more about the process, you're drawn into the work in a different way. That can be a good thing. But it can also be kind of an unobjective thing. The, the subjectivity comes into play. It's like, I like the writer. So therefore, I'm going to like the work more. So I think it's great information to have, but you got to be careful with it. So yeah, sometimes you can hear too much. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Vanessa Shields is here with us today at All Right in Sin City. She's the author of two poetry collections from Windsor's Black Moss Press and a forthcoming collection from Palimpsest Press, also here in Windsor. Vanessa, welcome. You're often open about your work process and how you come to a poem. How do you think that impacts the experience for readers? Well, uh, my work is very conversational um and i'm not i don't believe in writer's block at all there's a big process wowie for you um because i i really for me time is kind of my um biggest challenge so i sort of have a bank of ideas i always keep little books with me to write my ideas down um or i send myself emails so when i do sit down to write i I sort of have these kind of homemade prompts, if you will, that are just waiting for me to kind of expand on. Um, so I, uh, for me, it's, I always have lots of ideas and because, because they come quickly and because my, my voice is very conversational, sort of, that's what you're going to get when you read my collections. And and in fact, my new one, I'm hoping it's not going to have any titles on any of the pieces. Hmm. So it's really like, I really want it to feel like a big, long conversation that you can jump into at any point jump out of at any point um, and just really feel like everything is connected to everything else. So you feel like the titles um, act as a sort of fence 
or um, sure, maybe a little bit of a psychological break. Yeah, sometimes they set this, and what depends what you want to do with the title. We, Irene and I, we just shared a, a love poetry writing class, and a lot of the poems didn't, didn't have titles; they had numbers or like little fancy picture things. I don't know what those are called. Wingdings? I don't know what they're called. Anyway, um, and and some of them did have titles, and some of the titles um, told you what the poem was about. Some of the titles were just a repeat of the first line, which we had a conversation about that. Um, and so titles can, yeah, they can be uh, views into the piece, um, or they can be uh, the setting the stepping stone or, or, or the front door real like that says, you know, here's the sign, here's, we speak, this is what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, uh, I want to play with that in this collection and it's, it's definitely something to talk about as uh, formatting comes up all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, how you put the words on the page, where you put them, why you put them there, if you use punctuation or not. Um, all of these things, I mean, we could talk forever about, uh, and they all play into what a poem is and is directly then related to the subjectivity of the person who's writing it and also the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, you could give the same person one poem, you know, once every month and they may like it three months of the year and hate it the rest uh, or whatever. You can figure <laughs> that out. But yeah, reading poetry is very, very subjective. As you're coming out with a new book, um, how has been the editing process? Have you been able to, how have you found communicating all of that with your editor? So we're, we're just in the very, very beginning stages of that. Um, and we took off uh, 75% of the manuscript. So I'm <laughs> really starting from brand new, beautiful scratch. Um, but it's okay. It was the right thing to do, the best thing to do for the story and for the poems. So right now I'm doing a lot of writing, which means there's going to be tons and tons of editing and revising. So I'm, it's very, we're very early in the, the birthing stage. We've just begun. Well, we're kind of just newly pregnant, actually. <laughs> um, so we're not in labor yet, which will come down the line. Um, but yeah, I know it's going to be a really long, which we have a lot of time to work on that. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, but, uh, I trust, I trust my editors always. Um, and you know, again, Irene and I were talking about, I, I often put too many words in my poetry. And so I know I'm always prepared for my editors to say, you got to take like a lot of these words out and, and I'm okay with that. I'm used to that. That's just part of my process. Getting back to process just a little bit, how you say you have a lot of different ideas in a bank. How do you know when it's one you want to go with? what's the feeling or the the sign that this one's it? I don't forget it, for one. Even if I write it down, say it's only a few words, I'll I'll sort of remember the context around it. If I don't remember the context around it, then that's one indication I lost it. Um, But certainly it just, it sticks in my mind and it it stands out um, more loudly than the rest. So it's one that stays with you. Yes. Yep. What are your favorite topics or types of subjects to treat poetically? Uh, you mean to write about? Okay. Um, geez, women, being alive, family. Um, I really enjoy writing about sex and, and, um, sort of sensuality, uh, although I haven't really been doing that, uh, lately and it's really not going to be much in my new collection. Uh, maybe that's why I feel like I want to write, <laughs> write it more because it's not something that I'm going to be publishing. Um, just, I don't know, everyday kind of life things, 
through the eyes of uh, of a woman, I guess. And your new collection, that's about a specific relationship that yes. you have, right? Can you tell us a little bit more sure. about that? Sure. Yeah, it's about my relationship with, with my grandmother, my um, Nona. She's Italian. Um, she just turned 90 in September, uh, and she uh, was diagnosed with dementia a couple of years ago. Um, she's actually doing great considering what that disease can do. She still knows who we all are. All are let's try that again. She still knows who we all are. Um but certainly, um, aging uh, is a huge is a huge part of it. Um, you know, she's the matriarch of our family, and what it means when and what happens to a family dynamic when someone like that gets gets sick. So there's uh, going to be poetry about her life and how incredible she is, and her immigrant story coming to Canada from Italy, her love with uh, my grandfather, um, you know, her skill her skills as a seamstress. Um, so everything from, you know, pre-Canada coming over on a, the big boat to Canada in the fifties, starting her life here, having children. Um, she lost her first child, uh, and it was the only boy. And so then she had three girls after that. So just, you know, the impact of all the kind of big life things that happen to this woman who didn't have her, her own family here and didn't know the language and, um, you know, is looking for work and all kinds of things. So I have her life history in there, which I think is going to be, you know, woven in uh, amongst dealing with the t- deterioration of her mind. Because what's incredible is all of those memories, she remembers like they're yesterday or today, but, you know, she doesn't know what day it is or what time it is or what she had for lunch. So it's pretty uh, incredible to think about what the brain can do at the same time as it's deteriorating. And what's happening to the family on that level too, right? There's also de- deterioration um, happening among uh, some of the family too. So It's definitely a topic to which so many people can relate. Oh, sure. So you've recently started a new endeavor, Gertrude's Writing Room. How is that going? I think it's going pretty well. Um, classes, uh, people are taking the classes. Some of the workshops are selling out. Um, and people seem to enjoy themselves when they're there. Uh, and some of them return for more classes and more workshops. So I'm really trying to take it slowly, um, see what people want, and try to create that for them, whether it's a class or a workshop. Um, yeah, I want to just take it slow. I'm, I'm, a new entrepreneur, so um, sort of learning the ropes of the business side of things. Um, but as far as the writing goes, I feel really comfortable teaching and sharing the writing with people um, and just learning about their processes and how we can help each other be creative uh, and be creative every day, you know, as often as you can be. And what kind of topics are you offering at, at Gertrude's? So we just finished a five-week class on uh, love poetry. So I have um, running a bunch of poetry classes called um, Masters in Poetry. So it's really um, subjectively masters, quote-unquote, who I think are masters of poetry. And I put a big collection of them together, and each week we read them, we review, and, you know, give our uh, thoughts on the poems of the masters, quote unquote, and then there's prompts. So we read the work, you're prompted about the work, and then you have to write poetry. So each week, poets write five poems a week. They're supposed to. They don't get in trouble if they don't, but um, they're supposed to write five uh, poems a week. So at the end of the class, they'll have 20 poems that they've written and that were then sort of workshopped with the other people in the class. So it's a really big... um, 
commitment, but also if you're interested in writing and you don't know what to write, you don't have to worry about that. Everything is given to you. And then you have the opportunity to share your work and get it workshopped. And then, you know, whatever you want to do with it. At the end, you could do a chat book, you know, a chat book. There's going to be enough poems for a little chat book or submit it to something. So poetry classes, kids classes, comic book writing. Um, I'm working on hip hop. Uh, I'm working on a workshop about writing out the body. So our body is going to be our focus uh, as the prompts and ekphrastic writing. We're going to do a class on that. So I don't know, whatever my brain comes up with, whatever people ask for, I, I'm going to try to deliver. And how are people responding to the workshopping part of it? Because for a lot of people, that's very, very new. And sometimes it's a little bit startling. Are they, are they enjoying it? Yes. Well, we're, we start, we really set the scene and the space and the energy right away. So for example, in the first week of the five week poetry class is really just about what is critiquing? How do you do it? Um, why do you do it? What the intentions are? And there's like forms you can use if you really need a format to follow. Um, and you know, we really kind of get to know each other as much as we can in our writing backgrounds right away. And I think that sets a really safe, vulnerable space. So by the time we do get to sharing, um, everybody wants to share, uh, which is fantastic. Um, and then, you know, we just really set the scene and are very clear about what's going to be happening in terms of the critique, critiquing process, including, you know, reading your work out loud, which some people have never done before. Um, and it's a whole new experience reading out loud. And so we talk about that as well. And if you don't want to read yours, you know, someone else can read it or we can read it quietly. So we're, you know, we're really adaptable. Um, but, but right away we set the scene and the stage about how it's going to be. And so hopefully people can at least know that it's safe to decide whatever they want to decide when it comes to the, to the point of sharing. Okay. On the subject of Gertrude's writing room, I also want to aver that excellent snacks are provided. <laughs> yes, there's always, um, you know, light refreshments and, and beverages. Absolutely. Yep, for sure. Because you got to make things a party or that's, it's not worth it. That's right. right. It's yeah, true. There you go. Yeah. So um, now we have a little bit of uh, reading that you did recently at Urban Farmhouse Press's By the River Reading Series. Three poems that came out of that kind of workshop environment that... Um, kind of changed your writing process a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about how this process was different in creating these? Sure. Well, first of all, I, whatever class I'm teaching, I'm participating as well. So really enjoy that and being critiqued as well. I'm learning so much about my writing. Um, anyways, um, but I don't usually have prompts or like, you know, I know I'm writing about my Nona, but it's not specific to, you know, write a poem with the same title as a poem that you're reading. So it really, you know, forced me to focus a lot more, but also think about and write about things that I'm totally being inspired by whatever that word is or whatever that line is. Uh, so usually 99% of the time, something outside of myself, which has been really, really fun to do. Uh, and so I think you're going to play um, a little bit of a responsorial psalm poem. So one of the prompts is um, respond to a poem that you read. And you can make that mean whatever you want. Um, you know, if the poem asks a question, you can write a response answer, or you can ask yourself the same question or whatever the case may be. Um, so I 
I looked, I remember going to church and there was always those responsorial psalms where like the, the priest or someone on the church team would say, you know, read this line, everyone reads it together. And then there, there's a a stanza basically, and it's often a song. It's, it's, it's often sung out loud. So I, I checked that format and I created a responsorial psalm to whatever poem I was reading. And so at the reading, I asked if everyone could say the response with me. Then I would do the stanza and then we would say the response together. So it was a whole different vibe, vibe having, you know, the audience interact. Um, felt It reminded me of being in church and uh, but the community, like the nice, the good parts that I enjoyed. So I think you're going to share some of that. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think one of them I read had the same title as another poem which is really fun because uh, Irene wrote a beautiful poem with a title called Sudden Light. Uh, I think it was by Neruda. Okay. And uh, several other people did as well. And each poem was so different and so beautiful and lovely, but they all had the same title. So just really wonderful way to play with words and, and give yourself enough focus that you're not worried about not knowing what to write about. Okay, perfect. Well, so let's take a listen to Vanessa Shields reading at By the River. So the first one I'm going to read is called Making the Beginning, and this one is written in the same format of um, a poem called The Back Channels by Jennifer Houle, and she is a writer from the East Coast. Uh, And I was watching the film The Hours while I, uh, that's what sort of gave me the inspiration for this, Um, and um, it was a scene with Virginia Woolf and her niece. Um, That's what inspired the poem. Why don't we remember where we came from? The little girl asks the writer as they lay a dead bird on a blanket of wide green leaves embedded sticks. The line takes away my breath, then returns it to me in one fell swooping word, death. I remember that yesterday as I was cutting up cheese, I said loudly in my head, I do not want to die right now. The thought dialogues rush like lemmings to an edge. I'm not afraid of edges, but I am wary of what lives beyond. I'm not brave enough to jump, yet I've peered over, my toes pushing rubble to the wind. Never do I hear the rocks smack down on the bottom, only the dust sighing. We don't remember where we came from because it is for us to make the beginning. The soul in each body has lifetimes of tales, but only in fractures and breaks. Do we ever hear the sowing of sweet sorrows to the silk of our love's melody? Fear plugs the ears, blocks the tones that offer miracles like dewdrops on the earth in the mornings. I do not want to die right now. I spread the words over my body like a shield. There is still too much to learn. There is still too much to fail. There is still too much to suffer. There is still too much love that anvils me to this weakening planet. I'm afraid of what the future will bring as the sun heats us. I'm afraid to drown, so I choke on life. See stars when I blink. So that was a little follow this, this same format of the poem. That's all that that was. Okay, so this one is use the same title. And the title, um, also by a poem um, by Jennifer Houle, is called Accident One, the number one. And it looks like this. 
And in the editing, we uh, took out the whole last stanza, which is uh, something that happens with my work all the time. Often, I cut out the first stanza, and I cut out the last one. Marty's longtime editor of my work, and he knows too many words. Okay, so here we go, accident one. It was no accident that this soul chose the woman, her womb, in which to begin its light, in which to begin its transfusion of previous livings into a new story, in which to begin its new version of this taste called love. You see, this soul was bound to love, like oxygen to trees, like pain to healing, like on to off. This soul did its research. This soul paid attention. This soul was breathing in the woman like a mountain breathes the sun. It was no accident that in that fervent moment of conception, the soul slipped in like a dream. The soul landed in her red womb, gathering the him, gathering the her, pulling them together in miraculous embrace, the spark sharp in that slap of ecstasy. The soul was home again. I'm also thinking about doing a manuscript on souls, so I was trying to play with that too. Okay, so this one um, is using a line from a piece, um, and the piece, uh, the line is, even this page is white, so I protest this page, and that's by a poem by Vivek Shraya, uh, and her book is called Even This Page is White. Even this page is white, so I protest this page. Every word is a protest to the silence, every sigh a breath to the light. The knowing knows that to protest is to catch fire and burn deeply. Every color is a protest to the darkness. Every shade is a protest to the light. The knowing knows that to protest is to rip apart a little or a lot. Every poem is a protest to the land. Every story is a protest to change. The knowing knows that to protest is to want life when death is watching. Every song is a protest to the mountains. Every painting is a protest to the sky. The knowing knows that to protest is to fight the fight that wants to rest. Even this page is white, but this page comes in all colors or none. The knowing knows that to protest is to let go of the not knowing. You are the page and the words and the knowing, so you can repair your skin can heal so your scars can be your story. The silence is for others to read you. Recently, we were able to attend some launch events around the beginning of a new series by Biblioasis on Canadian history. And the first book was launched was They Call Me George by Cecil Foster. And we also have some clips here from one of the launch events at the North Star Cultural Community Center here in Windsor. Um, and in his this first clip of Mr. Foster talking about his book, um, he's going to talk a little bit about the process of how he came to this story. Why did I write this book? In the introduction to the book, I tell the story of my last meeting with Stan Gazelle and how my wife and, and me were driving along in Toronto and we saw him waiting for the bus. And my wife, Sharon, who you met earlier, and, uh, and I were going along and I said, hey, there is Stan, and we gave him a ride home 
and we took him right to his house and uh, and I had seen Stan before uh, I knew him around Toronto I knew him back into the 70s uh, when I first came to Canada and when I was the editor of a newspaper called Contrast which was the black newspaper and he would come around and everyone knew him and I thought I knew Stan and uh, but it was only once I started to do the research and uh, I got into his archives at the uh, archives in Ottawa that I really got to appreciate what he did to make this country a better place. He's so erudite, isn't he, Kim? Thank you for that. Um, so the next clip that we're talking about, uh, we're looking at um, Cecil's theories about uh, multiculturalism and how the work that the men did and that he talks about in his book helped to provide the vision that brought Canada to uh, a, a multicultural society that we do have, which is really interesting. When... I look at what these men did, apart from obviously raising their families and being the bedrocks of the communities, was that they had many of them had divisions. And many of them, when they met in the various halls that were close to the railway station, where many of them would hang out so that they'll be on hand if there was a need for someone to work on the train the next day so that they would know and where they were while away the time playing pool and different things. They also had some very heated discussions about issues all around the world, about human rights issues, about independence in the West Indies, about Jim Crow in the United States, about the March on Washington, which was always something that was being discussed about um, the inequalities that they face on the train. But more importantly, they always had a dream of a better world, of a better Canada. And to me, that's what I want to take away, that these men collectively had a vision for Canada that resulted in the kind of multicultural Canada that we have today. So many people have really expressed surprise upon learning about the history of these sleeping car porters or railroad porters in Canada and the significance of that professional role for people of African descent, but also some of the treatment and some of the experiences that they had while serving in those roles. So Cecil talks about that here. The way that the system was established then was that there were about 20 men who got permanent work. So there were, they had a kind of seniority where they knew that they would be going transcontinental or wherever they work at specific um, days of the week. But there was a whole number of other porters who were on a kind of a standby list and uh, they got work very much as the need was. And they augmented that body of, that was there that had the regular work. 
a similar thing happened with um, the Red Caps, where, again, about 20 or so of them were the guys that were sort of had the first dibs and had the seniority, and then there were others who relied on the work because it was the only work they had, but they did not have guarantee shifts. And that is one of the differences. That, and beyond that, the Red Caps brought the luggage and guided people towards the train and away from the trains. And uh, the sleeping car porters dealt with them on board the trains, welcomed them on board the train as if they were welcoming them into their homes. Our friend told us that he had his name there. Often, when they went to work, they had to put their name plate up on the car to say this car is under the supervision of. And this is why it became so ironic when they would then be called George when their names are there and sometimes their names are even on their on their their brass and um, but the idea of being called George to some extent didn't even have anything to do with them as individuals it dealt with the kind of work that they were doing um, so it was like saying secretary bring me a cup of coffee or doctor how am I feeling so George just became that kind of standing because George came from this man, George Pullman, who took a wonderful idea that was pioneered in Canada when the, the Prince of Wales was visiting Canada uh, in the late 1800s, and they didn't want him to be getting off at the end of the night and go into um, various hotels. And they said, well, how can we, in fact, get a palace on wheels and they created that so that when he came through he didn't have to get off and go to the hotels Jars Pullman took that idea and then he said well who's going to man this thing for him he went down to the south where there were plenty of um, <coughs> labor from people who were had been previous slaves and had no jobs and he made them into sleeping car porters. Thanks, Irene. So our next clip here, we're looking at um, the idea of the train trip from Toronto, how um, the the work of the men on these trains and their families back home actually led to the work of the immigration policy in Canada and changes that were made because of the collective stories. I want to talk about that train trip that happened out of Toronto in 1954 when porters from all over assembled in Toronto and decided that they were going to Ottawa to talk about the conditions of black people in this country particularly how they were treated as British subjects and to argue that they were not being treated truly as British subjects ought to be treated. 
they were very annoyed that the government had a policy where it split British subjecthood in two, into those who were white and had all the benefits, the benefits particularly of getting their family members to come and join them living in Canada through immigration, and those who were black and uh, really had no recognition in Canada. They didn't get the kind of jobs that anyone else would have, and they could not bring the members of their family with them. And, uh, and when they went in 54, this was just after Queen Elizabeth had given her a great speech about um, how great the, common, the empire and commonwealth were and, uh, and how everyone should be so proud to be uh, a British commonwealth member. And they used that idea and they said, look, um, black people have fought in just about every war that Canada has been involved in. And they went back to um, the war for American independence or American secession, uh, depends on how you call it. And they gave examples. They gave examples of the war in 1812, 1815. They gave examples of how black people in Canada f had to fight two battles, as they told the minister then, um, in the First and Second World War, they had to fight, first of all, to get into the army, and then they had to fight the enemy. And, uh, and of course, there was a third fight that was happening right across America, and uh, the, the, the West Indies and elsewhere, and it was a fight for equality and for citizenship. And, uh, and that really came to a head after the Second World War, both in Canada and the United States, when the question was being asked, can you really bring back soldiers who had fought for freedom to liberate Europe and Asia and other places and bring them back and have them live on free? And uh, so that was the third battle that they had to fight and uh, so these men um, and some women, there were women in the delegation um, one of the people uh, who might resonate with you is um, the mother of Lawrence Hill who is one of the better known writers uh, that we have in the community she was in fact the secretary to the delegation that went out and um, so they went and they met with the minister and they confronted the government. And, uh, and of course, at that time, everyone laughed at them. Um, I have a famous quote in the book of a columnist for the Globe and Mail saying something to the effect that what these um, porters and others were trying to achieve was so um, absurd that it was hard to believe as he said the only thing worse than opening Canada to 500,000 black people would be to open it to 5,001 so his argument that there shouldn't be any at all so these men 
and their allies um, took on the government and ultimately they got the system to change when the government changed its immigration policy to bring in what might be considered to be female porters. And that is good housekeepers who weren't going to work on the trains but who were going to work as domestics in the homes of white families. They did essentially the same thing. Good housekeeping was the cornerstone. But that was the beginning of um, the idea that um, those who wanted to come to Canada should do so based on merit, not based on the, the racialization. And the result of that was that ultimately in the 19, late 1960s into the 70s, Canada had subsequent changes to its immigration policy and more so to its immigration regulations. And the result of all of that is the Canada that we see today, which is the very multicultural Canada. Uh, a Canada in which, you might have noticed, the Minister of Immigration is a black man. And that is quite an achievement because the period that we are talking about, black people were not even allowed into the country. Now we have reached a point where at least symbolically it matters. We can have that sense of belonging. Cecil has been launching this book all over Ontario as well as uh, Metro Detroit and it was very lovely to hear him speak of the experience of launching this book in Windsor and how significant this has been um, in the community in Windsor and especially in the communities of African descent here in Windsor. And in this clip we uh, hear a little bit about his thoughts about that. Now let me tell you why I am happy, and this is where I am going to depart from anything that I had planned to say. And to tell you um, how heartwarming it is for me. Because when I was researching this book, when I was writing it, and all of my conversation with Dan and my editors, I never thought that th this book would be used in the way that you are using it. And I compliment you for doing this. The fact that it could be a rallying point, that it could be a way that we can remember the history of blackness in a very meaningful way. The way that we can have a scroll with names on it, and that we can have plaques, and that we can have statues, and that we can tell those stories. And if this book helps to make that happen, I would really feel good that this has achieved something. Because those are the stories of Canada that have gone missing for a long time. And those are the people who work hard, who build good communities, who made contributions to this city, to this province, to this country, and who are ignored. So if there are more meetings like this and in other areas, I really um, commend, uh, commend um, the group for that. So uh, I think you should all give yourself a little. Thank you.
round of applause for what you are doing. And I hope that this is something that you share not only with other history groups and black associations um, in this area, but yet you take it wider feeling to the rest of the province and in the rest of the country. And uh, I look forward to reading how the unending road continues and that uh, we haven't yet ended the struggle on the road. So congratulations on that. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. All Right, W-R-I-T-E, insincity.com. All right,